Hello, welcome to the Pub History Project podcast. It's a podcast about history and pubs. My name is Stephen Bunker. And my name is Barry Lowell. And we are going to be running a series of podcasts that have spun off the, uh, the Leicester Pub History Project, which is a database available online of the many, many pubs that have existed in the city of Leicester. The, the website's been running for about 18 months so far, and more and more pubs are going on every day. And what has been really pleasing is to, is to get the comments that are coming in from people that have visited the site. Now, one comment and one question that we've, we have had raised a couple of times has concerned the sort of pubs or the sort of drinking establishments that we've listed on the website. So today's podcast is going to be quite simply, what is a pub? I don't know, Barry, what is a pub? Well, uh, nationally, I'm not quite sure of what the records are, but going from the Leicester Borough records, the first we can find of is in 1220, and it lists uh, Roger the Vintner. A few years later, we get Richard the Taverner. Now, the taverner derives, I believe, from the French word tavern, which we now call public houses. And the taverner held the license to supply alcohol. And that's basically it. And we're, that's turned into what we now know as the public house or pub. Usually the licenses probably were held by men of wealth or influence. They often held a high office, such as bailiffs. An assessment of tax was eventually made. And if we go back that far, the records in Leicester to 1220, 30, there was as many as 200 brewing alehouses and taverns in Leicester alone. 200? Their names not fully materialised. So a tavern keeper were known by their forenames, followed by their, by their trade, such as Walter the Tailor. The Sign Act of 1393 was mainly was mainly to be easily recognised by the tax and ale inspectors, so a sign had to be erected outside. Now, I can tell you a, a little story about that, because I had a pub in Leicester. Uh, we opened a pub. There was no sign outside, so um, we uh, hung a sign outside. Along came uh, a, a council official, as I probably call her, uh, Miss Yellowcoat, and she said to me, where is, uh, you've not got permission for that, so you better take it down. So I said, oh, oh, really? She said, yes. There's no, you need planning permission, so I, I will come back in a week's time and hopefully you've taken it down. So the reason I know this sign act of 1393 is during that week I looked up the history of the signs and found out that Richard II decreed that all public houses or sells, who sell liquor had a sign outside. So when she came back about a, a week later, ticking her boxes, she said, you've not taken that down. Um, you'll, have, you'll probably be prosecuted. So I said, I've got permission. She said, who from? I said, Richard II. Now, my partner, my business partner was me. He cracked up. I said, Richard II. She said, pardon? She thought I was joking. I said, no, the Sign Act of 1393, Richard II decreed that all public houses must have a sign outside for the tax inspector. So she scratched her head and away. I never heard anymore. So I'm she's probably still scratching her head, Barry. Probably, probably still scratching her head. Yeah, I'm presuming that that act has never rescinded. I did say that at the time. I said this act has never been rescinded. I wasn't sure of the facts, but she never came back. So and the sign's still there. Well, but she's probably not that sure about the facts either. 
<laughs> but I think <laughs> no, you're, not, you're, no. probably, you're probably covering it. I mean, what exactly is a pub? Uh, is 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 one of those sort of big questions, really? Um, yeah. And I I think your definition sort of covered it. You know, um, you know, in the, in the world of history, there's a there's a, a scholarship group for just about every undertaking, for every activity, and and of course, pubs and drinking are no different. And there is something called the Drinking Studies Network, which uh, is is rooted very much in the Midlands. And in that, yeah, Professor Cumin. Uh, who's at the University of Warwick, you know, just put out this sort of very broad definition, actually, as a dwelling whose master regularly sells alcoholic drinks to members of the public for consumption. So, yeah, pretty much you've got broad accessibility, the public bit, alcoholic beverages and others, commercial exchanges, fixed premises, regular provision, and a person in charge. Would you say that pretty much sums up? Absolutely, Lester's? absolutely. Yeah, the person in charge, uh, the licensee, the landlord or landlady, mm -hmm. their word was law until only until a few years ago. Really, uh, they didn't have to give a reason for not serving anybody. And something you you mentioned there was that the pubs were known by the occupations or the trade of the you know, person of status who 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 tailor or, or whatever and I, and I thought well that really tells us actually that pubs were never just for selling beer or ale or wine even were they they always had other activities and other things that were related to them would you say that was well, pretty that, much yeah, that's absolutely true the um, uh, most of the pubs the licenses were maybe held by uh, the landlord uh, and who had a different, might be a wheel right, as a tailor, a butcher, or whatever. And so the alehouse or, or oven was run by his wife, usually. And that's where we get a lot, a hell of a lot of landladies. Um, I remember reading um, a, a book, I think it was called The English Alehouse by Peter Clark. Mm. And, and in it, he, he, he says there's that many lady alehouse keepers in Leicester, probably 10, between 10 and 20%. That obviously has gone on for four or five hundred years. The front person's not always the male; it's the it's the female. And I wouldn't be surprised, given the fact that many men have got different occupations that are, are spinning out of a public house. If that sort of notional twenty percent of pubs that how it were run by landladies was probably in practice a much higher figure. Is that that if uh, you know in Leicester that the man is focusing on the the carrier's business that's running from his pub or um, some other sort of undertaking like a wheelwright or something like that, that it's going to fall to his to the wife to run it, even if it's his name um, that is officially. In, uh, associated with the, with the, with the license, wouldn't you say that? Yeah, well, I sort of can imagine that records weren't very well kept in those days, and uh, yeah. there was many obscure and unlicensed alehouses, yeah. also called tippling houses. Um, and that just that just tells us that really, you know, that you know, what is a pub is a pretty broad entity, and that it's it's changed over the years, um, influenced by a whole load of factors. So that when people come to the, the website, they may look at a, a place and think, hang on, you, you know, you've got Leicester City Football Club's bar included, or you've got um, you know, little, little sort of shopfront bars included. But that's just to say that, you know, on that broad definition of what a, what a pub is, what a licensed premises is, you know, that, that this has been a changing picture over the last sort of 700 years. 800 years in, in Leicester, would you say? Yeah, well, there's been uh, peaks and troughs in the amount of alehouses or pubs. Um, we, we've included anything that's 
has a full license mm. and some of them are a little bit obscure and I think to myself well that doesn't really mean it's a pub but in, in my own mind a pub yeah. is an old-fashioned boozer but we include them because they are fully licensed and you're allowed to go in there to drink yeah. so board accessibility alcoholic beverages that's kind of it I mean the bulk of the pubs on the website are from the 19th and 20th century and as, as they've been going on yeah, something that struck me is that there have been a couple of periods when there's been a rapid number of pubs and um, drinking establishments that have opened and closed almost with equal rapidity and the two bits that really stood out for me were you know the, the mid 19th century when you had the advent of the the beer house and uh, the beer house keepers seem to be doing all sorts of jobs as well as selling beer and then the early sort of millennium turn of the millennium period when you when you had a lot of bars opening up in leicester so here today gone tomorrow rapid change of names were they the two striking bits for you barry yeah that's, well your first one it was born out of the 1830 beer act mm. when for the, for the price of two guineas and, and i believe as long as six neighbors put your name forward, you get a license. And so you, it was a massive, massive jump between 1830 and 1860 and 70. And then we found a drop. The Temperance Society got a foothold and persuaded uh, the corporation to close quite a lot of the pubs. So, so they looked at it and closed them down with what's called the Compensation Act. So if they deemed that the pub was unsatisfactory, didn't sell enough beer, too many in, in a particular area, they could close them down. And, and your second point, well, that that really, in my opinion, came about, was it the 1990 yep, Act? Yeah, right. 1990 when, Act, yeah. Yeah, when, when the breweries were, were not allowed to own more than 2,000 pubs. So before that, probably in Leicester was a prime example, uh, there were only five or six main brewers that owned all the pubs. But those pubs were leased out or tenanted or managed at a, a reasonable rent because the brewer was interested, really, in selling the beer. So he might rent out a pub for £5 a week or whatever. So everybody was happy. Uh, then the Beer Act came in when they weren't allowed to own more than 2,000. So these different pub companies came out, which to me were state agents with a tune uh, <laughs> to get licenses. And what they did, they upped the rents. And consequently, you get quite a few of pubs changing and, and going under. But to, what took the place were a lot of cash bars. So licenses, mm. again, became easier from around about the year, say, 1995, 2000. So it's easier easier to get a license. All you had to persuade the magistrate that you were a, a good good enough person to do that. So, And that's where we get the, the advent of all the cap bars. Um, to me, they're not really pubs as we know it, but they are have, do have a full license. And so we, there we see the change in habits again. Yeah, yeah that's right. And they fit that broad definition and, and and it's really striking to see you know the number of of these bars that come and go on the same premises just you know there's a change of name almost every other year with some of these places as they get a new identity a bit like the old you know, the old beer houses in the mid 19th century certainly between the 1830 act that you mentioned and the 1869 wine and beer house act which made it a lot easier to cl close them down um, temperance campaigners, the police for sure, and maybe even just sort of changing attitudes in in the Leicester sort of public. Uh, you know, the, the, these these beer houses were t turning over at a rapid speed. 
run by people who were sort of here today, maybe gone to another pub tomorrow, and and then you know doing other little jobs on on the side. I mean, I think one of my favourite was was old Alf Sherwin, the the Duke of Rutland in Oxford Street, who yeah was not only a beer housekeeper but was also a tripe boiler on the premises. <laughs> which, <laughs> on, the premises on the premises, Stephen. So that, oh, that would be lovely, wouldn't it? What a so smell that would have been. Tripe. I don't know which which was more lucrative for him, if either of them were particularly lucrative. And we were just coming across one of the the, the white bear in um, uh, Red Cross Street, run uh, by possibly by George Toom. We're not quite sure who did it, but an 1842 advert that, as well as as well as um, selling beer, he would he would also um, do a bit of dentistry for you, as well as some bleeding <laughs> to balance your humours. My bugger! I love when you say the 1830s. There was yeah. a vast turnover. A lot of publicans that, or, or beer houses that were formed in 1830, 31, 32, by 1840, 45, they're gone. Mm. Because yeah. obviously they took out the wall, thought this is a good thing, but it wasn't. Yeah. And when you get two or three in the same street, only the fittest survive as is today, really. Yeah, that's right. And that's, these are the sort of things we're going to be talking about in, in, the, in the future editions. We're going to, yeah, we're going to talk about the different types of pubs that have existed and come and gone, uh, different pub names. Um, I think we ought to have at least one episode on the different types of beer that you could you could get in a, a, a public house. So these are. I hope you've enjoyed this this little clip. Um, thanks for listening. Um, if you have enjoyed it, you know, please click and subscribe. And so you're going to hear more ramblings from Barry and I on about the history of pubs, beer, and really much anything to do with drinking. And just one further reminder that this podcast is an extension of our website, www.pubhistoryproject.co.uk. Have a look if you're interested. And if you've got any questions or you want to contribute or join in our discussion, you can email us at pubhistoryprojects at gmail.com. Thanks for listening from me, Stephen Bunker. And thanks from me, Maddox. Barry, cheers. Enjoy the rest of your day. Take care.